Welcome to the Independent Advisors Podcast, where we dive into the world of stocks, tradable markets, and financial planning with Jessup Wealth Management's Chief Investment Officer, Mark McEvely, and CEO, Matt Jessup. You'll hear tips, tricks, and strategies to address your financial well-being, and most importantly, conveyed in a way that everyone can understand. Here are your hosts, Mark and Matt. Hey everyone, welcome to episode number 155 of the Independent Advisors Podcast, where Matt Jessup and I, Mark McEvely, bring you everything you need to know from the past week in the world of financial markets and financial planning. So I'm sure people are wondering if Mr. Jessup is still alive and well right now, since I think this is number four in a row that I've had uh, my sidekick Nick on with me. So we'll sidekick see. Sidekick uh, Nick, that has a nice ring to it. Sidekick Nick, yeah, I just came up with that now. What do you think? I like it. So, uh, so Nick's joining us again today. So Nick, uh, thanks for joining again this week. Appreciate having you on as always. Um, before we begin, we will take the first few minutes to recap the performance for the month and the year of the major indexes that we track. And these numbers are as of the market close on June 22nd. And the data is from stockcharts.com and Coifin. S&P 500 index down 9% for the month and down 21.1% for the year. The Dow down 7.6% for the month and down just over 16% for the year. The NASDAQ uh, down 8.5% for the month and down 29.35% for the year. IWM ETF that tracks the Russell 2000 index down 9.44% for the month and down 24.56% for the year. The Vanguard International ETF, X United States, down 9.6% for the month and down 19.27% for the year. The three-month T-bill currently yielding 1.53%, the two-year Treasury yielding 2.99%, and the 10-year Treasury yielding 3.1%. Um, so kind of interesting numbers from this year, uh, or excuse me, this month, Nick. Uh, the Dow outperforming the S&P, as well as the NASDAQ outperforming the S&P 500. So, you know, what I've been seeing over the past week as I've been, you know, flipping through my weekly research and my charts was something that I found that was interesting, not to say that this is calling the market bottom, but the stuff that has done the worst so far year to date. So think about your small caps. Mm -hmm. Think about your ARC Innovation ETF, yeah. the Kathy Woods ARC ETF, right? Uh, the IPO Index ETF. Um, all of those have been significant out or under, excuse me, underperformers so far year to date. But the interesting was is they did not make a new low along with the S and P 500 last week. So to me, that's helpful information saying, hey, the, the junkiest junk of this year mm -hmm. has stopped going down, at least yeah. for now. Um, taking, taking a bit of a breather. Right. And yeah. small caps, the ARC uh, tech ETF and IPOs are all pretty aggressive areas of the market. So it just makes me think if those things have stopped going down relative to the S&P for the time being, are we close to... Uh, seeing the risk on trade come back. So it was just something that I wanted to note just because going through these numbers, uh, the NASDAQ 
outperforming the S&P this month. Um, IWM kind of right on par with it, but just something interesting that I found that I wanted to make people aware of. Yeah, and I think that's going to tie in with a couple of points I have later, as, as well as the headlines that we're going to talk about. So. Okay. Um, so moving on to headlines and current events, uh, Fed Chair Powell testified in front of Congress this week, and he said that the central bank is strongly committed to bringing down inflation and can do so with its monetary tools. He said that the Fed plans to raise interest rates until compelling evidence emerges that inflation is coming down. And he also noted that a recession is a possibility and that a quote unquote soft landing will be very challenging. And I think this term soft landing has been thrown around for the past couple of months now. And I think, you know, my interpretation of it is, you know, taming inflation without throwing the economy into a recession, right? Without spiking unemployment. Right, exactly. So, and you know, we always, always hear the the typical definition of a recession is two negative uh, consecutive quarters of of negative GDP growth. Mm -hmm. Um, But you know, after doing some more research and listening to other people in our industry talk that are that are smarter than me and you, you know, yes, that that indicates a recession. But when you start to see increased layoffs and job losses and consumer spending start to dry up, mm-hmm. that's also very reminiscent of a recession, too. Yeah. So and that's that's more associated with the with the buzz term you, you hear hard landing for listeners that hear that a lot, but don't really understand that. I don't know. Hard landing is when it is you know, quite literally harder on the economy. So your unemployment spikes and all the other things that you kind of went through. Right. So, um, so they're committed. I mean, I think they're going to, they're going to continue to raise interest rates throughout the rest of the year until inflation, um, starts to moderate or decelerate. So we'll keep everybody up to date on that. Uh, The second headline, Nick, that I don't want to get too into the weeds on because it could be confusing for people, but the Philadelphia Fed Manufacturing Index uh, went negative for the first time in two years. So, again, this is reminiscent of recessionary indicators, right? Manufacturing slowing down, which means, quote unquote, the economy could be slowing down. So um, just another thing, I don't want people to be to be shocked if we look back six months or a year from now and we're actually in a recession right now because you don't know that until you look back at the data right if we could predict the future right right if only that crystal ball that crystal ball yeah um so moving on to tweets articles and research from this week uh the first thing i had was a tweet by ryan dietrich on june 16th and he said again this was on june 16th so about a week ago Uh, The S&P 500 is down 12.2% in the past 10 trading days. The last three times this happened, February and March of 2020, August of 2011, and March of 2009. And I think the big takeaway from this tweet for me, Nick, is it's hard not to notice that the last three times this happened it was kind of near the bottom of the sell-off. Now, I'm not saying it necessarily is calling the exact bottom, but it's just an interesting data point uh, to let us know that we may be getting closer and a lot of the damage has already been done. Um, So that's the first thing that I did when I saw this from Ryan. I went back on my charts and looked back to to 2020, 2011, and 2009, Mm -hmm. and it wasn't necessarily the bottom, but it was close. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I would expect 
maybe we get another good flush or another capitulation where the VIX spikes and people are dumping everything, uh, kind of throwing the, the baby out with the bathwater. And that could be signaling that we're getting closer to, to some, some sort of shorter intermediate term bottom. Uh, next thing I had was a tweet from uh, Jeff Weniger on June 16th, and I'll have Jenna put this up on the YouTube uh, uh, channel right now for us so all the people watching could see this. But if not, this is going to be on our show notes uh, on Twitter at Jessup Wealth um, or LinkedIn or Facebook with Jessup Wealth Management. So uh, Jeff tweeted, finally, you see the big COVID spike up in money supply. Now it's a spike down. Money is disappearing, recessionary. So he has this chart of the four-week change in the U.S. M2 money supply. And this is something that Matt talked about a lot when we were in the heart of COVID, that when the stimulus checks went out and unemployment benefits were increased for uh, a short period of time, people were saving money, people were paying down debt. There's a lot, of, a lot more money flowing around in the economy, right? So uh, just as a reminder for listeners, the M2 money supply includes cash, checking and savings deposits, money market funds, all held by by the public. And, you know, when money is getting pulled out of the system, people don't have as much cash and inflation is higher. It's kind of a recipe for a slowdown in the economy, right? Absolutely. Um, So I don't want to say, you know, obviously looking back at at where we are now, it's like anyone could be like, oh, well, how could you not predict inflation coming when you had this much of an increase in money circulating? too much money chasing too few goods but that increase was in 2020 and the markets kept rocking and rolling for several years so it's it's not a timing indicator it's like yeah eventually this is probably going to be a problem but people thought the same thing back in 2001 we had an m2 money supply Mm -hmm. spike and we had the same thing in in 08 and 09 maybe not to the magnitude as what we saw in 2020 but it's more of a I would say a a warning data point rather than a timing indicator. Yeah, it's when you think of it from a timing indicator, I mean, if if we reflect on what what happened in 2020, it was such a massive shock, massive swings in unemployment and then, you know, job growth coming back. And what what the federal government and governments around the world were trying to do was trying to ease the pain, the pain and, and the spending level so that it doesn't drop. And then we go into just a massive recession that lasts for years and years and years. Even the Fed couldn't predict that job growth would come back as quick as it did, um, which is probably those two pieces is why inflation took off. So to, just to kind of reiterate your point that just because this spikes, it's not it's not a leading indicator that, oh, if that spikes, inflation is going to take off to you know 8%. That's not exactly... That's not how it works. No, it's not. And, you know, I think a lot of people thought with the stimulus from, you know, the Federal Reserve back in the great financial crisis that people thought the same thing. They were like, oh, we're going to have really big inflation problems over the next five years. And there was virtually no inflation. Not the case at all. (laughs) Right. So, again, it just things in our industry don't make sense sometimes. And this is one of the things that you could look back on. And it's not if this happens, then that's going to happen type of thing. You just have to kind of wait and see what the market gives you and see what price does, right? There's a lot of variables always. 
Um, the last thing, uh, staying on the Jeff Weniger uh, train, I actually listened to Jeff on Meb Faber's podcast uh, a couple weeks back, and um, he has some really good stuff and research uh, out there if people want to check him out. But um, he had another tweet on June 15th and uh, regarding growth versus value. Okay, So he says, these cycles don't last months, they last years. Growth started taking off in 1989, ruling all for the next 11 years. Then value totally flipped that situation for seven years from 2000 to 07. Then 14 years of nothing but growth. Now it's value and it's only been eight months, dot, 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 so far. So, you know, he and we'll have Jenna put this this tweet up on the, um, the video as well right now for people, but you can see that these the value and growth outperformance and underperformance tend to happen in pretty long cycles. And I think he's making the argument that we've peaked in this growth outperforming value. Um, and it's only been eight months since that peak. So I just wanted to get your take and, and see what you think, if this is something that's going to last for a long time, or if we just in yeah. a completely different environment than we've been in the past, and you're going to see growth rebound pretty quickly. Yeah, that's a great question. And this is something that, that the talking heads and then the shows I watch on, on Bloomberg's in the morning, uh, a lot of people are on both sides of the fence with this. And you look at this chart and it makes sense. And, I, and I'm not you know, discrediting what, what Jeff says. It's an, an excellent point and an excellent chart. I guess the question I would pose to listeners and, and to think to poke holes in that theory is to think about what happened in, in 2020, what's happened in the past three years with with technological innovations in the workplace and then compare it to the last value outperformance cycle. The last value outperformance cycle was from 2000 to 2010, basically the, the dot-com bubble. Now let's think about the tech companies that were around in the dot-com bubble and, and everything that was going on then and what the economy looked like relative to today. The argument, the, the counterpoint I would make to the idea that value is going to outperform over the next eight years or, or, X number of years is, is this, it's that we have changed a lot as, as these major companies have changed a lot. And as a society, we've changed a lot. More people are working from home. Um, everyone works, not everyone, but a lot of people work on computers and in, in some capacity nowadays, there are semiconductor chips in everything, mm -hmm. everything. And, and not just one semiconductor chip. I mean, when you think about a, a, a car, for example, how many semiconductor chips are there? Like, like back in the, and I'm going to tangent for a second, but back in the, and in, in COVID when there was a shortage of that, some of the semiconductor chips that there were shortages on were like small chips that go in your seat to right. like electronically move your seat back. Mm -hmm. So because of all of those things that are going on in the economy and, and the work remote, that, that t actually takes a pretty enormous amount of research uh, of resources to make that happen, which is why I think some of these bigger tech companies are still positioned pretty well over the next decade right um so that's kind of my, my my thought on that and you know yeah and i and good you arguments know, on both sides us as you know portfolio managers i really i'm indifferent on if value is doing is going to outperform or if growth is going to outperform because we're going to remain adaptive and we want to own whatever's you know going up relative to the index right exactly so i think as investors we have to remain open-minded and and adaptive to be able to change and 
tilts more towards growth or value depending on which is outperforming. Um, so it's not a, a situation where I think, you know, people need to pick one or the other, right? Obviously right, there's, yeah. there's mutual funds and, and ETFs out there that they're growth, purely growth managers or purely value managers. And we're just obnoxious, uh, or excuse me, um, agnostic to that. Yeah. Right. So I think you just have to, you got, you got to follow price and follow the trends in this market. And if we're trending towards value, then yeah, it's going to make sense to have more of a value tilt, but, uh, it's going to be vice versa. But I think the key here is that, that no one truly knows if value is going to outperform over the next 10 years or if growth is going to outperform. 2000 was a lot different than 2022. Right. It just was. Um, and, and to your point and, and something I want to, you know, and, I, and listeners are aware of this, but just to reemphasize this for listeners, when people get into the whole value growth debate, that was huge a year ago. That's everything the market was talking about. Oh, growth, underperforming and value outperforming just because value generally speaking is outperforming doesn't mean there's there won't be names within the growth space that are also outperforming and right. perhaps performing the best in the market yeah you can't you cannot bucket all growth yeah, into one not, and all yeah. value into the other exactly so that just uh, a, a word to the wise of of not uh, getting too hung up on on generalizing the market too much yeah no I agree yeah. turn it over to you yeah, so um, my first tweet uh, piece of research is on liquidity and how liquidity is still low in the markets. Um, I just want to talk through that. This is a tweet from um, Wall Street Jesus on 618. Um, this is someone that I know Matt follows pretty closely. They have, you know, 150 plus, uh, 150,000. <laughs> another uh, interesting Twitter An handle. Another great Twitter handle, yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm coming up with some good ones here, so... Um, so there's there's a few charts here, and it's on the S and P futures liquidity and volumes, and um, you know, the futures market is is obviously um, something more complicated that the average listener probably doesn't follow as closely. But th that's kind of how we we look at things, you know, out of out of market hours. You can see how how um, how the market's moving and the direction of the bid ask, et, mm -hmm. et cetera. So these charts are pretty cool. You can see the top left chart um, shows your average daily ES1 bid ask contract size. So the ES1 is just the, the mini series S&P 500. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of like the uh, S&P 500. Um, and you can, you can see just all four of these charts. And, and the main takeaway here, I'm not gonna dive into every, every single one of these charts, but the main takeaway here is that when liquidity is low, there tends to be larger swings in the market, right? There's not as many people out there pushing the markets around. Volumes are lower, so it creates larger movements, both right. up and down. There's not as many buyers and sellers. Exactly, which means your bid ask, and we've talked about this in the past, that spreads out, which can, can create larger swings. And that's not just on the index level, that's across every type of security. It, quite literally every type of security. If if liquidity was low on an ETF, then the prices would swing higher, et cetera. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's why I wanted to throw throw these charts up, and I'll let listeners kind of look look into these on their own. Um, but that, the main takeaway is that you know when liquidity is low, there tends to be larger swings in the market. Um, and I think in in the near term, we can continue to expect this. Um, and I think volatility is here to stay for 
several more months. Um, and that that's to the up and the downside, unfortunately. Um, so yeah. just listeners should be aware of that. Um, I don't, I don't see a resolution to this and, and anytime soon, when I say anytime soon, let's say three months mm-hmm. to be longer. Yeah. And again, like liquidity, I think people can view it as like, how quickly can you, can you turn this money into cash? Right. And, and how quickly can you sell something for what you want to sell it at or buy it for what you want to buy it at? And yeah. just the lack of buyers and sellers means that you might not get the price that you want on that, that execution. Yeah. Right. Exactly. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's common to see liquidity dry up in times of market stress that happened in 2020, yep. uh, happened in 07 and 08. So, um, not, not uncommon for times like this. Yeah. And I guess another point I'll make about that, when you think about when, when the average listener or, or, or investor is thinking about, well, what do they mean? Like liquidity, what a stock gets executed. Cause when I buy something in my fidelity account, it executes instantly. I want you to think about it on like the grand scale, like the biggest investors out there that when they trim a position in XYZ, they have to trim 2% of the entire flow mm-hmm. and getting out of that can be difficult. They might yeah. have to par out of it over weeks, over months. Yeah, it takes time. And, and so that's where it, it's really tough because let's say a big hotshot investor who's trying to get rid of 2% of one of the biggest companies in the S&P is looking for looking to sell and they're, they're, they're committed to get out of it. Well, if there's not a lot of buyers, what ends up happening is they keep pushing, pushing on that stock price. And that's why you see those big volatilities. It's not down to the individual level, although that is uh, a contributing factor. It, you got to think big picture with some of this stuff. Hopefully that kind of helps. Yeah. Investors no, understand that a little that bit out. more. Um, my next piece is, uh, on a, uh, technical recession. Um, changes in a, in a formal recession are, are real, so to speak. And this is a, a tweet by Ryan Dietrich on 615. And it says uh, the following, after today's disappointing retail sales print, uh, the Atlanta Fed now sees Q2 GDP at 0%. Now, this comes after a rare negative Q1 print in 2022. And there's a, sh- uh, a, a chart here. Um, that, that you can see. So, and this, you just, you mentioned this just a few minutes ago about how a technical recession is two consecutive quarters of negative GDP growth. Um, and so with the Atlantic federal reserve and there's different, you know, home offices, but this is just one office and, and their forecast, they all have different forecasts. So this is the Atlantic federal reserve, uh, and they're now forecasting, you know, a break even Q2 GDP, um, that tells us that the threat of a, of a technical recession is, is real. Um, and, and we've already discussed what a technical recession is. Um, you know, the next release on this is the end of July. So it'll be the, the 28th at, at 8.30. That's when the data is released. It's, uh, it's the BEA, the Bureau of Economic Na- um, Analysis. Um, and, and now for the reaction. Uh, the opinion on this. I don't think it's a terrible thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when people start talking about recession, oh, it's a bad, you know, obviously it's a bad thing, but if we could reach that technical recession sooner, kind of before there's a lot of pain in the economy from a market perspective, from a market pricing perspective, I think that's a good thing. Yeah. It gets us to those technical levels where, you know, we can now like check the box. It's like once the two and the 10 invert, 
everyone's looking for the technical recession, right? We, right. we have, we have to have a recession, right? That's mm-hmm. the you know, history tells us that. So if we technically enter into a recession, I think the market and market participants can start to look forward to good news and, and hopefully we have a turnaround. But what, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I think it's a situation where like bad news is good news. And it's just like, let's just, all right, everyone's been talking about it for, you know, year to date so far. So let's just get it over with. <laughs> let's, exactly. Let's yeah. go into a recession so people can check the box and say, okay, we went through a tough period in the market. We went through a recession. Now things can start to get better. And the stock market is, I'm not, not going to say always, but in the past has bottomed and started to recover before the news in the economy has gotten any better. Absolutely. So I would continue to expect that to happen, you know, especially with this that we're in right now. So again, I'm with you. I think it's almost healthier for the market just to let's just get it over with and we'll be in a recession and hopefully it doesn't last that long and, you know, prices will start coming down and, and, you know, employment won't be hurt too much. Um, so I think it's, it's just one of those situations where it's like, all right, let's just get through it and exactly. we'll come out on the other side of it. Yeah. The stock market's a leading indicator, always looking forward. So if we can, you know, the, the numbers we've said today, the market's in, in a lot of pain. We've, we've sold off a lot. If it's looking forward, we hit that technical recession. We can, we can move on from here. So, yeah. um, the last piece I have is just kind of building on a lot of this and, and what the market is expecting from, from the fed. Uh, perspective. And um, this is actually from the 14th. So this is actually a day before uh, we last spoke on the podcast, but they, they had a good chart that could kind of break it down for listeners, which is why I wanted to, to include it here. Um, and it's from uh, Steve Leisman over at CNBC. And he said, here's how the future market is currently priced for the remaining meetings of the year, uh, 275 uh, rate hikes, 250 uh BIP, BIPs rate hikes and, and a 25 BIP rate hikes, according to uh, um, Refinitiv. Um, we'll see what this looks like tomorrow around three. That's what he was referring to for the Fed which rate hike. That, the which we got the 0.75% increase. Exactly, which we talked about. Um, and I just wanted to throw this chart up because it's, it, and the numbers haven't changed that much. These are, the, the numbers stayed stayed the same, which is why I wanted to, to kind of throw it up there for, for listeners, but um, the, the kind of point, the point on this is if we get these technical recessions and, and if we see a Q2 recession reported in, in late July, um, it would give the Fed a little bit more wiggle room. Like let's say inflation is, is less sticky than we, we think. It would, give an, it would give the Fed a little more wiggle room to not be as aggressive in this. Um, which could be beneficial for the market as well. But what do you, what do you think about all this? Yeah, I think the, the first comment I want to make is when people are looking at probability of, of rate hikes is my first comment is to, to not, not give it too much weight because before the CPI print, because they switched yeah. drastically. <laughs> before the CPI print, I mean, no one, I don't think anyone was expecting it to come in that high. Um, before that, the probability of a 0.75% rate hike in June was really low. <laughs> and then automatically that switched to being like 95% like probability. Digits, like single digits low. So this stuff can move. And that's why I always, you know, even before you started coming on the podcast, Nick, I hate 
forecasts and predictions and probabilities it's like we can't do anything with that information like i mean i don't think it's smart to manage portfolios based upon what could potentially happen you can't do that you just have to take what the market gives you and take what the numbers give you when they're here yeah right um so I think it's helpful data to see, you know, what the Fed's direction is going to be, but they're not married to this, right? By no means. And I think that's the main takeaway, right? So, like, you know, it pe- could change. Yeah. So when you're seeing this stuff on CNBC or the Wall Street Journal or MSNBC, Fox News, CNN, it's like, yeah, it's, it's helpful to know what the, what the Fed's thinking, but, you know, this could switch on a dime. <laughs> right. And yeah. and I'm just, I'm not a big fan of predictions and, and forecasts because a lot of the times people aren't even close when it gets down to it. Well, that's the best part of forecasting is when you get new data, you get to tweak your model. Right. And then, oh, okay, well now we think it's this. It's pretty funny if anyone's seen uh, research on the history of the sell side, because uh, for, for listeners who don't know, the sell side are are, are, is the side of the street that they write the research reports on stocks and, and they do the forecasting. We think the stock's going to be here in a year and whatnot. And so they're constantly, you know, revising their models and everything. And it, it's pretty funny to your point. Uh, you know, every time the data comes out, it's like, oh, well, well, now we're pretty confident here. But if you look at their historical projections, I mean, they're all over the it's place. It's all over and, the board. And, and wildly wrong mm-hmm. most of the time. So uh, just to piggyback on your. On, on your comments. Yeah, exactly. That's why I only I only like to to make decisions based upon information we have and information that we know is real. Yeah, exactly. Right? So, um, yeah. So, all right. Well, thanks for uh, filling in again this week, Nick. Uh, who knows? Maybe you'll be here again next week. Perhaps. Uh, I hope listeners aren't getting too tired of me. <laughs> so, I'm going to bring in Taylor for the financial planning topic of the week, and uh, we'll see you see you next time, Nicholas. Alrighty, thank you. Welcome back, Taylor. Happy to be back. So what do you have for us for the financial planning topic of the week? So today I just want to talk about some of Dave Ramsey's strategies about building wealth, um, paying off debt. Um, For those who may not be familiar with Dave Ramsey, he just has a lot of books. The most popular one is The Total Money Makeover, and then Mm -hmm. he has his own podcast. He's headquartered in Nashville, Tennessee, Um, and he's pretty popular. I mean, I've heard of a lot of people using him. Yeah, absolutely. I think a lot of people have gone through his, like... um personal financial uh program and he's he's very popular and and well written and um has a lot of good information really to be honest Mm -hmm. i don't agree with everything that he says but i do agree with a lot of the things that he says and i think it it's nice because he breaks it down and makes these things easy for people to understand to take control of their personal finances so Mm -hmm. exactly he has a very um a simple method to to what he recommends and the program you just talked about, it's called Financial Peace University. And mm-hmm. I actually took that when I was 19 years old. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Did you like it? I did. It's actually what got me into the industry. Okay. All <laughs> so, right. Um, well, he, was, he was kind of my first experience with information like this. And I was very gung-ho Dave Ramsey when I was 19 years old. Right. Um, but as I kind of got some more experience, I started to disagree with certain things. Mm-hmm. Um but I do agree with some things that he recommends also. 
So I'm kind of just going to go through his seven baby steps and we'll kind of get feedback and Mm -hmm. pick them apart a little bit. Okay. So his first thing he recommends before paying off debt or building wealth is establishing an emergency fund of a thousand dollars. Okay. And I mean, I think an emergency fund should definitely be the first step. Mm -hmm. Um, So I agree with that. I think a thousand dollars would be sufficient for maybe one emergency. Right. But if you have a larger family of five or six, I think maybe that should be a little higher. Yeah, I agree. And everyone's situation is going to be different. But I think a good rule of thumb is, you know, at least three months uh, living expenses mm-hmm. in an emergency savings fund. And, you know, this is one of the things that I actually really agree with Dave on, because I think when people start to get into personal finance and get into in- investing, they look at investing in, in stocks as like this like sexy money-making <laughs> machine, right? Mm-hmm. But I think it's it's really important to, before you play around with that stuff, to put yourself in a position where you can handle things such as the hot water heater going out mm-hmm. um, or a, a medical bill popping up and you don't have the funds in your HSA to be able to pay it. Um, so I think that this makes sense, you know, as the first step, it's like, okay, before we even talk about the stock market, mm-hmm. let's make sure you have enough cash set aside in order to take care of things if they pop up, mm-hmm. because you always have to have a buffer for stuff, mm-hmm. right? So exactly. if you, it's kind of like my analogy is when you go to buy a house, you're not just paying like the sticker price, right? Mm-hmm. And you're not just making those monthly payments. There's going to be uh, upkeep you have to do. There's going to be taxes you're going to have to pay. You got to pay insurance and all that mm-hmm. stuff. So you just have to be prepared. And it's good to prepare for the worst in good times. So over the past five years or pre-COVID, we were in really good times in the stock market. You know, S&P was up on average, like 14% per year-ish. So that was the time to be able to stock money away in your emergency savings funds to prepare to dip into those funds if you needed to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, exactly. And um, I think the the thinking behind this is, you know, if you don't have an emergency fund, you start paying off debt and building wealth and something happens and you're right back at square one. Exactly. Or maybe even in a worse position. Right. So. And it's never good to uh, get yourself in a position where you're racking up, you know, credit card debt at the 20 to 30 percent interest rates that they're at. Exactly. Um, so his his second step, it's called the debt snowball effect. And he basically thinks that you should pay off the lowest balance of any credit card or loan, just any debt you have, pay off the lowest balance first, regardless of how high the interest rate is. And then once that is paid off, you pay off the second lowest, third lowest. And his strategy behind that is that it's really motivating um, psychologically, and it just keeps you going. to go through his program. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this is, I think this is the one of the things that I, I disagree with Dave on yeah. because just from a pure number standpoint, that's not the most efficient way to do it. So mm-hmm. I want people to avoid paying interest as much as possible. So I always recommend, you know, start with the, the highest interest bearing debt first, even if that's the largest balance, because at the end of the day, that's going to have the largest effect. But mm-hmm. I do see his side of things that, you know, it's a psychological win if you get mm-hmm. that low balance paid off and you tell yourself, oh, I can I can mm-hmm. do this. This is possible. Yeah. Um, so I, it's, it's not like I, I, I poo poo that strategy. I just like 
the I'm a numbers guy, so I like uh-huh. paying off that highest interest-bearing debt first because at the end of the day, that's going to free up the most cash flow um, for people and, and save them from paying too much interest. And I, I agree with you 100%. I actually ran some calculations of my own to kind of prove that theory. And, okay. you know, by paying off the, the higher interest credit card, you do save a lot of money, obviously. So this is something that I do um, disagree with a little bit. But I, I mean, I like the motivation factor because it's really easy to, if you have a lot of credit card debt, you have multiple cards, you start paying off the highest one, it's easy to lose motivation. I, right. mean, I like that aspect of it, but like you said, from a numbers point of view, it doesn't really make much sense. Yeah. And again, I can see where he's coming from because it's harder to see progress on a higher balance that has, you know, a higher interest rate because Mm -hmm. you're making monthly payments and it's not going down by that much. And that might discourage people and and get them in the mindset that, oh, I'm never going to pay this debt off, Mm -hmm. which isn't the case. Obviously, we just have to Mm -hmm. commit to it and, and see it through. Yeah, exactly. Um, to just add on a little bit to the second step, he also doesn't really believe in using credit cards at all. He thinks that you should pay cash for everything. Um, regarding, you know, buying homes and stuff, he has some uh, different recommendations on that and maybe taking out loans. But for the most part, everything else, he thinks you should just pay for in cash. Yeah, I think people should do that if they've had a history of getting themselves into credit card debt. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are perks that come along with using credit cards right so you're you're building your credit so that when you go to buy a house or buy a car people can look back and say okay what's this credit history and that determines what Mm -hmm. interest rate you're going to get on your loan right Mm -hmm. um so i you know and to come with it most credit cards have rewards and travel points and hotel points airfare Mm -hmm. points so people do get um a lot I think back for using credit cards if they're paying their balance off every single month. Exactly. And the thing is most people can't handle credit cards, I feel like. Yeah. So that's where, you know, his idea comes from, but I don't think you should eliminate them completely. Yeah. I, I, it's just responsible use just exactly. like anything else. Right. Mm-hmm. So, um, so after you establish your thousand dollar emergency fund, and then after you pay off all of your debt, except for your house, okay. the third step is save three to six months of expenses in your emergency fund. Okay. So he's, he's, he's getting you started with a thousand dollars in there and then eventually work mm-hmm. up to the three to six months living expenses. Correct. And okay. I know everybody has different debt levels, but I mean, he, he has a pretty big social media platform and he has lots of people that have gone through his program who share their testimonies and Mm -hmm. things like that. I mean, some people are taking two, three, four years and paying off hundreds or thousands of dollars of debt. And I think that's a really long stretch to go and have only a thousand dollars. Yeah, it is. It is. But, um, you know, like anything else in life and in our industry, there's, there's a lot of ways to to skin a cat and a lot of ways Mm -hmm. to do things. So people just have to do what works for them. And sometimes it's going to be following Dave Ramsey's program and sometimes it's not. And that's fine. But as long as you're making progress in some sort of way, that's all that matters. Mm -hmm. So his next three steps are kind of all in one. Um, Step four, he recommends investing 15% of your household income in retirement. 
and then combine step four with step five and saving for your child's college fund. And then while you're kind of doing both of those, um, working to pay off the house early. Okay. Um, what I kind of disagree with regarding this is just waiting so long to contribute to retirement. Mm -hmm. I think if anything, you should do a small amount. If you have heaps of debt, you should at least be contributing something, not waiting to catch up with everything. Yeah, I agree. And I think the best example there is just contribute enough to your 401k where you're getting the company mm -hmm. match, right? Because mm -hmm. that's just missing out on free money at exactly. that point. So, um, yeah, I, you know, I, I think I, I like the 15% of your household income. Mm -hmm. I think that's a really good number. Um, I think for a lot of people, it's not doable. So maybe starting yeah. lower and working up to that. Um, and committing yourself to increasing your 401k contribution every year or each time you get a raise, take half of your raise and put it into your 401k, I think is an easy way to get to that 15%. But whenever I, I'm asked the question, Mark, how much should I contribute to my 401k or 403b or mm -hmm. my IRA or Roth IRA? My answer is always do as much as you can without financially mm -hmm. straining yourself from week to week and month to month. That's how I much agree. you should be doing. Yeah, um, and I mean, if you if you wait until after you build your emergency fund, after you pay off all of your debt, especially if it's really high, there's just a huge opportunity cost there because you're missing out on so much growth. Mm -hmm. I mean, if it's going to take you years to pay off all of your debt, say five years, for example, I mean, that's five years worth of contributions that aren't going to be able to grow for you. Right, exactly. And we've talked about this on, on the podcast before, but there's several studies and several research papers to, that show that investing money when you're able to do so all at once is better than waiting. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, you know, like we always talk about, it's imp almost impossible to time the market and time the absolute low. But if you're young in your career, the best thing you can do is to get started early. Yeah. Even if that's 10 bucks a month or 50 mm -hmm. bucks a month, you'll work your way up to the point where you're going to be able to max that stuff out. But at least just getting started mm -hmm. gets you involved and shows you what the potential growth can be over a long period of time. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, another thing that we've talked about on here is, you know, there's been no negative rolling 20 year period in the S&P 500. So I agree with you that, you know, if you're spending all this time paying off your debt and not investing, it's like, OK, mm -hmm. well, you're behind the curve now. And the biggest mm -hmm. regret that I hear from people is I wish I started investing earlier. Mm -hmm. And it really has to do with interest rates, too. You know, if you took out debt in 2020 and 2021, you're virtually paying close to zero percent in right. interest and you can make more money than that in the long mm -hmm. run in the market. Right. Right. Now we're in a different environment now because mm -hmm. interest rates are rising. And if people have debt that's in that like seven to 10 percent range, then it makes down to sit down and really evaluate exactly. what makes sense to invest it or to pay down your debt. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. And kind of touching on what you mentioned a little earlier, Dave does put a huge emphasis on starting really young. Mm -hmm. um, that's something he goes over in his Financial Peace University program, and he uses a couple different charts and just shows the difference, and it's huge. So he does put a huge emphasis on that. Um, and then his last baby step um, after you pay off your home is just to build more wealth and give, so just increasing your contributions and giving 
anything you can away to charities or your church, um, mm-hmm. things like that. And then, I mean, my only comment, I think, regarding Dave Ramsey is everything that I've said today just comes from a numbers point of view. Um, and he obviously emphasizes more of the psychological point of view, which is great. It does work for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think, you know, when it comes to personal finances and investing, you know, us humans are our own worst enemies, right? Mm-hmm. You know, if we were a machine that could just follow rules, it would be a lot easier. And I think people would be a lot wealthier, to be honest. But everyone has uh, emotion that they have to deal with with their own finances and, and their own biases. Um, but that's why we here, you know, we emphasize creating a plan with you and sticking to that plan through thick and thin. Mm-hmm. Because even though when it's at its worst, when we're in a 20% drawdown in the markets and it feels like it's never going to get better, portfolios and personal finances were built around times like this happening, mm-hmm. right? And the best thing you can do is just follow the game plan and, and see it through. Yeah, exactly. I so. agree. All right, Taylor, well, thanks for joining us again on episode number 155, and we will see you maybe next week or the week after for another financial planning topic of the week. Sounds good. And everybody, we will be back with you next week for episode number 156. Thank you for listening to the Independent Advisors podcast. If you're interested in hearing more, hit the subscribe button so you can be notified every time a new episode gets released. Feel free to share with friends, family, and follow us on Twitter at Jessup Wealth, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Mark and Matt will continue to share beneficial information on these social media sites. Also, check out the podcast tab on their website. That's www.jessupwealthmanagement.com. There you'll find links to every episode of the Independent Advisors. Have questions or topics you want to discuss on the show? Message us on Twitter, LinkedIn, or send an email with the words questions and topics in the subject line to inquiries at jessupwealthmanagement.com. We'll talk about it right here on the podcast. Certain sections of this commentary may contain forward-looking statements based on reasonable expectations, estimates, projections, and assumptions. Forward-looking statements are not guarantees of future performance and involve certain risks and uncertainties, which are difficult to predict. All indices are unmanaged and are not available for direct investment by the public. Past performance is not indicative of future results. This podcast is provided for general informational purposes only and does not constitute either tax, legal, or financial advice. Although we do go to great lengths to make sure our information is accurate and useful, we recommend you consult a tax preparer, professional tax advisor, financial advisor, or lawyer regarding your specific circumstances. Investing involves risk, including the loss of principal. No strategy can guarantee any objective or goal will be achieved. Advisory services offered through Commonwealth Financial Network, a registered investment advisor.